Jeremiah chapter 23. Now, before I begin reading at verse 1, let me just set uh, a little bit of context here. In the previous two chapters that we took a look at last Wednesday night, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to kings of Judah. Matter of fact, after the reign of a godly man named Josiah, there were four kings of Judah. Two of them just reigned for three months. Two of them reigned for 11 years. But none of them were godly. All of them were spiritual disasters for the people of Judah. And it ended all with the reign of a man named Zedekiah. And under him was the final conquest of the Babylonians over the kingdom of Judah. Now, in contrast to those four bad kings that God addressed in the prior two chapters, now we're going to see God speak here. Look at it here, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, you've scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Now notice this in verse 1. It's as if he's looking back over the four kings that he spoke to over the previous two chapters, and he says, woe to you shepherds. But perhaps it's helpful for us to be reminded that in the ancient world, shepherd was a term that was often applied to a king or to some kind of political ruler. So really, that's who he has first in mind. Now, by extension today, you could talk today that it would speak of a civil ruler, someone who's a king or a governor or even a mayor. There's a sense in which they're a shepherd over a community, but it also applies in an aspect today to a spiritual leader, such as a pastor. The the title pastor means shepherd. So we understand it in both these senses. Jeremiah had it in mind mainly for those who would be a political ruler, such as the kings of Judah. Here we have in mind also a broader thing in the modern day. But notice what they did. Verse 1, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You see, these leaders were worthy of a special woe. Why? Because they did not benefit the people of God. They destroyed them. But not only did they destroy them, they scattered them. And friends, when the Babylonian army was going to come down and completely conquer the kingdom of Judah, you better believe the people would be scattered. They would be scattered across the Babylonian empire and sent off into an exile for a very long time. Some of them would go away to Babylon. Some of them would escape as refugees to Egypt. There would be very few that would remain in the promised land. He goes on here, verse 2. He says, against the shepherds who feed my people. Now this speaks more to a spiritual aspect of leadership. Friends, it's true, the kings of Judah had a political office, but God intended for them to be a spiritual force in the kingdom as well. We notice that it's the good kings of Judah that had a spiritual focus, like Josiah, who found the book of the law and commanded it to be read to the people and brought a sense of revival back to the kingdom of Judah. This was a good king who was a good shepherd who fed his people. And God said that he's speaking it against those shepherds who did not feed his people. Now again, in a modern setting, we would say that this speaks to the great need for spiritual leaders among God's people to feed God's people. In other words, a responsibility of a shepherd, a pastor before the people of God, is to feed the sheep. 
And friends, please remember that. We're not talking about primarily entertaining goats. We're talking about feeding the sheep. Now, some people think that the more boring something is, the more spiritual it is. I don't agree with that at all. And it's not that the word of God cannot be presented in an engaging, captivating manner. We certainly believe that. But friends, the intention of the pastor as he stands before the people should not be primarily to entertain. It should not be primarily to titillate. It should not be primarily to excite people. It should be to feed them the good word of God. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told Peter at his restoration in John chapter 21? We're there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spoke to Peter and he told him, Peter, if you really want to follow me, if you really want to demonstrate your love for me, feed my sheep. He said it to him twice. And then he also told him something very similar, tend my lambs. But friends, this is God's great word to a shepherd today and back then to feed his sheep. And if they won't, if they will not attend to God's sheep, look at what he says in verse two, what happened to then? He says, behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. It's as if God's saying this, and the, the, the phrasing in the Hebrew is quite clear on this. He says, if you don't watch out for God's sheep by feeding them, you better watch out because I'm going to come and deal with you. That's very much the idea there in verses one and two. Now verse three, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. God says, listen, not only will these ungodly shepherds indirectly cause them to be scattered in exile, but God says that exile will not last forever. I will draw them back into the land. Now, friends, Many times when God gives a word of prophecy, and when I mean prophecy, I mean here something announcing that he will do in the future. What is he announcing he's going to do in the future here? That he's going to take the people of Israel and bring them back into the land. Oftentimes when God gives just such a prediction or an announcement of what he's going to do in the future, God does it in a way that will be fulfilled in a lesser way in the short term, and in a greater or more perfect way in the long term. And friends, the lesser way that this prophecy was fulfilled is very plainly, the people of God came back from the Babylonian exile. That's what the book of Ezra is all about. That's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. That's what he says there in verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock and out of all countries where I have driven them. God says, I'm going to bring them back into the land. And God did this. It's right there in the scriptures. They went out in exile. God brought them back into the land. And friends, I just want to remind you, that didn't always happen. There were many conquered peoples who were carried away in exile, and that was the end of their nations. They were never gathered again in their nation again. But no, God promised, I'm going to bring my people back. And it happened in the days of Nehemiah. It happened in the days of Ezra. It happened in the days of Zerubbabel and Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah, these great prophets and men of God after the exile. That's the closer, lesser fulfillment there is a greater and more perfect fulfillment to come of this prophecy. Because when God announces, I want you to notice this in verse three, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them. Now friends, God's saying it's broader than just in the Babylonian empire. 
I'm going to bring them from all around the world. And God promised that he would draw the Jewish people back to the promised land in the very last days. Now, one thing I want you to understand is that this is an aspect of the new covenant that God promised to Israel. The promises to gather Israel back to the promised land are found in many of the prophecies of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 32, Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 37. Each one of those contains some kind of promise that as an aspect of the new covenant, God will gather the Jewish people back into the promised land. Friends, let me tell you, the modern day miracle of Israel becoming an independent nation once more after some 2,500 years is an initial fulfillment of this ultimate fulfillment. The reason why I say it's initial fulfillment is because now they are gathered in unbelief. It will be perfectly fulfilled as there is faith in Jesus the Messiah that comes to the regathered Israel. But it's all part of the promises that God made as part of the new covenant. Friends, you and I, we may think of the modern day state of Israel right there in the promised land. And it's been around for what, some 60 years now. And so after 60 years, we're just kind of, well, yeah, that's just how it is. Friends, sometimes we lose sight. What an absolute miracle it was. A miracle that a people that had been out of their own land for 2,500 years. Now, I don't mean out of it as if they did not dwell in there. There had been a continual Um, presence of Jewish people in the land of Israel going back to the days of Jesus. And then, of course, before that as well. But friends, what I'm saying is they did not have their own independent state for more than 2,500 years. And God brought it back into presence in 1948. And it's a remarkable initial fulfillment of these promises. And look at this in verse 3. He goes on to say that they shall be fruitful and increase. Not only would God bring them back into his promised land, they would also be blessed there. The population would grow there. They'd be fruitful. And friends, if you go to the land of Israel today, you're going to see it is a fruitful land. It is a blessed land. God has his hand upon it. And then look at this blessing again, verse 4. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. One of the blessings that God promised to a gathered Israel was godly leadership. Those godly leaders, especially in a spiritual sense, would feed them, would give them security and prosperity. It says there in verse 4, nor shall they be lacking. It's interesting what God basically says. He says, when I bring you back from exile, I'm going to bring you back in a better way than you were, than you went before. In other words, I'm not just going to bring you back to the corrupt, wicked kingdom of Judah that existed before the fall. No, I'm going to bring you back to something better with better leaders. We find this fulfilled again in a lesser sense in the return from exile in a greater and more perfect sense, initially now to be perfected and given its full or its complete fulfillment in the coming decades. Now, verse five. Behold, the days are coming. This is God's answer for all those four bad kings of Judah before. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
Friends, these are some of the most wonderful verses in the entire book of Jeremiah. I want you to take a look at it. Verse 5. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now, long before this, hundreds of years before the time of Jeremiah, God promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a confirmation of that prior prophecy that the branch of righteousness would come from the line of David. Now check this out. At the end of the previous chapter, Jeremiah chapter 22, God promised that none from the line of Jeconiah would sit on the throne of David. It seemed as if the royal line of David was like a tree that was cut down. God cut it down and that's it. That was what was contained in the last few verses of Jeremiah chapter 22. And you know what God says? It's a picture of this, friends. It's as if there's a stump. The line of David has been cut off because of their great wickedness. It's just a stump there in the ground. And God says, oh, look, there comes up a little shoot out of the stump. A branch from the line of David. A branch of righteousness. And out of that one small green shoot, look what will happen. Verse 5, a king shall reign and prosper. You see, the branch of righteousness will lead God's people as a successful king. He's not going to be one of those lame puppet kings like Zedekiah was, set up by Nebuchadnezzar himself. No, he's going to see a reign of prosperity and justice and righteousness. This king will extend his reign. Look at it right there. It's in the words there in verse 5. To the earth, not only to the boundaries of Israel. And verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Rescue and security will be all for God's people, for Judah and Israel both. It's going to be united monarchy once again. Now friends, this has not yet been fulfilled. Because this is fulfilled in nothing less than the kingship of Jesus, not only over Israel, but over all the earth. So much so that this glorious title is given to him in verse 6. The Lord, our righteousness. Notice, Jeremiah announced that this would be the name by which this branch, this root of Jesse would be called. He would be the righteousness of Yahweh given to his people so that he himself is our righteousness. Friends, I just want you to consider that phrase. Let it sink down into your soul. The Lord, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. You're not your own righteousness. I hate to disappoint you. Your righteousness just isn't up to measure. It's just not good enough. I'm sure you're an outstanding person. You help old ladies across the street. You always call your mother on Mother's Day. You're very thoughtful around the holidays and all that. God bless you for all of that. But your righteousness isn't enough. You need a perfect righteousness. And what God says to us is he says, I will make the righteousness of God himself available to you in the Messiah. You see that phrase, the Lord our righteousness in the Hebrew is only two words, Yahweh Tzikitanu. And it's probably a play on the name of Zedekiah, which means Zedekiah means My righteousness is Yahweh. God says, forget about that lame Zedekiah. He's a terrible king. He's a wicked man. I'll bring you Yahweh to this canoe. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, friends, here in this text, 
it gives us a reference to the Messiah. And what I want you to notice is, look at it there in your Bible, the Lord our righteousness. This is fascinating. Christian commentators, of course, but ancient Jewish commentators, ancient Jewish commentators as well, recognize that this passage speaks of the Messiah. Do you understand what this tells us about the Messiah? It tells us that the Messiah is Yahweh. What is the name of the Messiah? The Lord Yahweh is our righteousness. This is fantastic. It tells us that Jesus is Yahweh, that the Messiah is God. And when the Lord is your righteousness, friends, that is something positive to your account. Do you understand that? Many of us think of salvation only in negative terms. What do I mean by negative? That something bad was taken away from us. Now, friends, that is true about the work of Jesus on our behalf. Do you understand that when you came to Jesus, when you put your trust in him as Lord, when you surrendered your life to him as Messiah, do you understand that he took some stuff away from you? Don't you thank the Lord for that tonight? That he took away the guilt of your sin? that he took away the shame of your sin, that he took away the judgment that your sin deserved, that he took away the power of your sin. Isn't that wonderful? He did all that. He took a lot of stuff away, but it wasn't only subtraction. It was also addition. He gave you his righteousness. Friends, you're talking about the ultimate righteousness. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have the righteousness of a real man of God in the Bible, like Job, uh, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, like Paul, like John, the apostle. Wouldn't it be wonderful? But God says, forget about their righteousness. I'm going to give you the righteousness of God, the righteousness of my own son. That has been positively added to your account. Isn't that wonderful? That's what he gives to us. The Lord, our righteousness. And friends, that is a power for you to rest upon. That's a peace for you to hold in your heart. You know, when I was studying this week, I I read, as I always read, that old guy I talk about from time to time, the Puritan commentator, John Trapp. And he quoted something from Martin Luther. Let me read it to you. Okay, listen carefully. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I just need you to listen carefully here. This is what, what Martin Luther would say to the devil. Ready for this? He says... You, Sir Satan, your menaces and terrors trouble me not. For why? For there is one whose name is called the Lord our righteousness on whom I believe. He it is who has abrogated the law, condemned sin, abolished death, destroyed hell, and is a Satan to thee, O Satan." I just love that. I love how he begins, Sir Satan. He's speaking to him. He goes, listen, let me tell you, Jesus did this work on our behalf. He is our righteousness. And Satan, you have your own Satan, and it's Jesus Christ who is set against you as your adversary. Friends, this is our hope. This is our confidence. Now look at this, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say... As the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. 
Friends, notice what it says there in verse 7. They shall no longer say the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. Did the Jewish people and do the Jewish people today celebrate their deliverance from Egypt? You better believe they do. They do it every year, if not more, in that wonderful holiday of Passover. That's what Passover is all about. They remember and celebrate. This is what God says. He goes, I am going to do such an amazing work of restoration in and through the new covenant in bringing them back, in changing their their heart, in in making the Messiah their own righteousness, that, friends, it's going to be a new standard for what I do. They're going to say, this is the greater thing that God has done. And verse 8 they shall dwell in their own land. Friends, the emphatic promise is repeated again. God will bring his people Israel back into their promised land. And even after the great promised exile and judgment to come, he would not be finished with them. And even today, he is not finished with Israel in their land. That's what the word of the Lord says. Now, Those first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter 23, pretty great, right? Uh, Can we go to the rest of the chapter, which is not so great? Because in the first eight verses, we have the announcement of Messiah the King, the branch from David, the Lord our righteousness, the gathering again to the land. We're like, yes, the first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter 23. With verse 9, He shifts perspective and turns to a different prophecy. You see, in the previous two chapters, Jeremiah 21 and 22, he explained that one of the big problems in the kingdom of Judah were the kings of Judah. They were wicked men. But here's the problem. The kings weren't the only problem in Judah. There were also the prophets. And so from verse 9 to the remainder of the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about the corrupt and false prophets that troubled Israel. You ready for this? Fasten your seatbelt. Verse 9. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of a curse the land mourns. The pleasant places are the, of the wilderness are dried up and the course of life is evil and their might is not right. Jeremiah introduces this, this mournful section where he accuses the false prophets of Judah by beginning describing how painful it was for him to talk about it. Verse 9, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. He was distressed and greatly troubled by the presence and the work of other prophets in his day. Friends, don't think for a moment that Jeremiah was the only guy that said prophet on his business card. There were a lot of people in Jeremiah's day. The problem was, was that as far as we know, and I'm just saying as far as we know, it's not necessarily true, but as far as we know, Jeremiah was the only true prophet of Yahweh speaking to Judah in his day. That all those other prophets were corrupted in some way. They were false in some way. And Jeremiah is calling them out. And he says, my heart is broken because of the other prophets. Verse 9, all my bones shake. 
I'm like a drunken man. Friends, this was not because he was overcome with a pleasant sense of intoxication because he was supposedly filled with the Holy Spirit. No. This was in dread and indignation at the work of the other prophets as he compared their supposed words from God with the holy words that God brought, or that Jeremiah brought in God's name. Let me put it to you this way. The contrast between their message and Jeremiah's message, it made him sick to his stomach. What was his message? Friends, haven't we got enough of his message through 23 chapters of the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah's message, wouldn't it be fair to say that one of his main messages is this, repent? Don't you think that was his main message? Jeremiah's message was repent. All those other prophets, you know what their message was? Relax! Friends, don't you think there's a pretty big difference between the two messages? Repent or relax! It was going to be one or the other. Jeremiah's calling them out. He said, you guys are false. Let's continue on. Verse 11. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall on them. And I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. Look at that phrase in verse 11. For both prophets and priests are profane. Do you know what profane has in its idea? It's the opposite of holy. You have that which is holy, and you have that which is profane. And God says, I called the prophet and the priest to be holy, and instead they're profane. This was one aspect of it. Now, friends, we're going to see that God spoke to the prophets, the corrupt and false prophets of his day, Jeremiah's day. And he basically took them on for two things. The first thing was unholiness. They did not live holy lives. And so it compromised everything. Uh, Do you think it was just in Jeremiah's day that there are people who stand in front of the people of God and their lives are unholy? Man, it's not right. It needs to be set right. Those people need to flee to the Lord our righteousness. And they need to find their place in him. But I want you to notice, in this first section, he's calling out their conduct because their conduct was awry. Matter of fact, in verse 11, he says, in my house, I have found their wickedness. It wasn't just that the personal lives of these prophets and priests lacked holiness. Their profane hearts and their ways were evident in the house of God. In other words, it wasn't only what they were doing in their house. That was bad enough. But they were bringing it into the house of God as well. But friends, here's the bigger problem, beginning at verse 13. It's as if God dealt with their unholiness first. It's almost like as if I'm envisioning God saying, okay, let's get this out of the way. I've got profane prophets and profane peace. That's wrong. They've got to get it right. Now, starting at verse 13, God is beginning to deal with the greater problem among the prophets. And it wasn't their life. It was their message. And God's going to deal with that. Verse 13. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. 
They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lives. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and are inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood. I will make them drink the water of gall for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. I'm going to deal with them. God promises that he's seen the folly in the prophets, first of Samaria, that was the northern kingdom of Israel, and he dealt with that, then of Jerusalem, of the southern kingdom. What is the result of it now in verse 14? So that no one turns back from his wickedness. Friends, when no one is being turned back from his wickedness, then things are very bad among the people of God. Look, friends, let's admit, We, we struggle with sin, do we not? We're, we're not shocked. We're, we're not... We're, we're not overly, you know, surprised that there may be wickedness in the lives of God's people. Here's what, what pains us the most, is that they don't turn back from it. I I think of the believer who's hiding sin in some way in their life. And and they're terrified to admit it. You know, the the prayer team comes up here every service. They're they're terrified at the thought of coming up to a brother or a sister up here and saying, I need to confess this sin because it has power over me and I'm, I'm trapped in this. They somehow are terrified at the thought of doing that. Friends, do you understand that the wickedness, the sin itself is easy for God to deal with? It's the failure to turn back from it that God says, that's alarming. That's alarming. How refreshing it is to just put your arm around a brother And say, brother, you've fallen into sin. Let's go to the cross and bring it before Jesus. Let's plead before God and have the blood of Jesus and his great work on the cross cover it and give us strength for a new day. Let's shine light into every dark corner. Let's just come away from the pure and clean. No more hiding. No more secret. Let's just do that. Instead of living a life that so compulsively hides everything. That's the real difficulty. And that's what was being seen here in these ancient days of Judah. That's why he says there in verse 15, it says, from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. And I I misspoke a little bit before. Verse 15 really closes the area where he's speaking to the profaneness of the prophets. Now at verse 16, he's going to start talking about their message. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Do you see the shift from verse 15 to verse 16? In the section, verse 9 to 15, he was calling out the prophets 
for their wickedness, their profane lives. And there was something to deal with there. But now, starting at verse 16, he's calling them out for their message. And what was their message? Well, first of all, their message was not to be listened to. Look at the words of verse 16. Do not listen to the words of the prophets. Can you imagine God saying that? There's some prophets. Don't listen to them. Now, why would God say that? He'd only say it because they're not true prophets. They're corrupt. They're self-appointed in some way. God himself told them, do not listen to them. Normally, God would tell people, pay attention to the prophets. But this shows how detached these supposed prophets were from the true word of God. Look at how he describes it there in verse 16. He says, they make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart. You see, these corrupt prophets spoke, but it was not from the mouth of the Lord. It was merely a vision of their own heart. And the effect of this man-made words masquerading as the words of the Lord was to make those who believe those words worthless. That was the word in there. Look at it here in verse 17. They, they continually say to those who despise me, in other words, the corrupt prophets were afraid to speak a word of rebuke and repentance to those who despised God. Instead, they spoke smooth words of peace. They promised, look at what it says in verse 17, no evil shall come upon you. That's what they said to everyone, verse 17, who walks according to the dictates of their own evil heart. There you are walking according to the dictates of your own evil heart. And the supposed prophet comes along and says, no harm will come to you. That's not a word that's going to help you. You you need a loving but firm word that says, stop, repent, don't relax, repent. You know, I think of that phrase, walk according to the dictates of his own heart. Our modern culture thinks that this is supreme wisdom. Serious. Our modern world, here's wisdom in our modern culture. Ready? Follow your heart. That's like, ooh. I think, think about how many movies you see. That that's really the theme. Follow your heart. Our, our modern culture stops and thinks, man, that's wisdom. Oh yeah, that's what to live your life by. You know what God says about that? The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's twice stated in the book of Proverbs, both in chapter 14 and chapter 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. Friends, I'm not trying to be inflammatory when I say this or sensational. I'll just lay it out to you straight. Following your heart can lead you to hell. It can lead you to hell. Now, I'm not saying that, that every time there's something in your heart that it's evil and wicked. I'm just saying it's not a reliable guide. You've got to look to God and his word to give you the guidance. Verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and who has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury. A violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it 
perfectly. You see, God had an anger against these corrupt prophets, and it was not just a matter of personal irritation. It was righteous, and it would be performed against them until his justice was accomplished. I think there's sort of an interesting play here. You see, in verse 17, God condemned those people who just prophesied according to the dictates of their own heart. That's how they prophesied. Now, in verse 20, he says he's going to perform the dictates of his own heart. God says, you're going to follow your heart? God says, I'm going to follow my heart. And my heart is to judge the wicked. Here's the thing, folks. God is going to follow his heart. And his heart is full of righteousness. It's full of love, but of righteousness and justice against those who reject him. Look at verse 21. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, they would not have turned from doing their evil way and from the evil of their doings. God says, verse 21, I haven't sent these prophets, yet they ran. Look at all the energy they do their thing with. Look at how devoted they are to their own work. But God says, I didn't send them. They're delivering a message that I never gave to them. And if they were sent from me, what would they be doing? Then they would have turned them from their evil ways. Friends, please understand me on this. Repent is not the only message that God has for the world in his church. It is not the only message. But it is a significant aspect of the message. And if you're ever part of a congregation or a circle of believers and you're never hearing, repent. You're never being challenged about sin, both for the believer and for the person who has yet to become a believer. Alarm bells should go off for you. Again, I'm not trying to imply that this is God's only message. That there would be something wrong if that was the only message coming from a pulpit week after week after week after week. But there's also something very wrong if it's never being said or rarely being said. Verse 23 Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? As if God calls down from heaven, hello, I'm here. Do, do you think you can do this? I speak in the name of the Lord business so unfaithfully and I not notice it? What, 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 when do you think the bill on this is going to come due? Do, do you think you can purport to stand in front of God's people and and purport to bring them a message from my word when you're not faithful to it at all and I won't notice it? Do do you think you can claim to speak in the name of the Lord and I don't see it? God says, I feel heaven and earth. Of course I see it. And that's why he says in verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as the fathers forgot my name for Baal. Friends, would you please look at what it says there in verse 25? 
I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. This should have terrified the corrupt prophets. I have been prophesying lies and God has heard it. Friends, let me make a very clear application to the present day. And I see two main ways that this is applied. Number one, I think it applies to any pastor or preacher who claims to speak in a church or among God's people and to deliver the word of God. This is a ringing call to any pastor or preacher, such as myself or anybody. You better be faithful to God's word. You stand up in front of God's people. You're claiming to bring forth God's word to them. You're not claiming to be a prophet, but in the sense that a prophet brings forth the word of God, a preacher should be bringing forth the word of God. And if that's what you're going to claim to do, you better do it. And you better not just be speaking your own dreams, your own visions, your own fancies, your own this, your own that. You better bring a message from God's word because this is what matters. It applies to the pastor, the preacher, the teacher. I understand that. But there's a secondary way in which it applies. A very important way in our present day. There are many people today in the Christian world who purport to be prophets. And if they purport to be a prophet, then just let them be judged as a prophet. Let it be tested. Let it be discerned. Let it be measured whether or not they speak a true word from God. And if they say, in the name of Jesus, I declare this person healed of cancer, and the person a short time after that dies, look, they they shouldn't be stoned, they shouldn't be hated, they shouldn't be exiled, but they shouldn't be taken seriously as a prophet. If it's nothing but grandiose spiritual experiences. This is what Jeremiah is talking about with dreams. Oh, it's all fancy. It's a dream. It's a dream. It's a dream. Jeremiah was just bringing forth the word of God. But if it's all focused on people's grandiose spiritual experiences. Oh, I had a dream. I had a dream. But it's not the true word of God. Then you're not to take him seriously as prophets. Friends, I don't want to be misunderstood on this. I believe in what the New Testament calls the gift of prophecy. I have experienced the gift of prophecy in my own life. I have had prophetic words spoken through me, and I have prophetic words spoken over me that have been remarkable and true. I believe in the gift of prophecy, but I believe in the biblical exercise of the gift of prophecy. And this is what the Bible says. You see, in a New Testament context, God commands that any supposed prophetic word be judged in the congregation. Let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. 1 John chapter 4. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And to those in the Christian world, in the charismatic world, in the broader Pentecost world, to those who do this and fulfill this role of testing and judging the prophets, God bless you. It's a wonderful, important thing you do. But I fear that in many corners of the charismatic or Pentecostal, whatever you want to call it, world, that it's almost seen as a sin to test a prophecy. You're quenching the spirit. You're questioning, is this true? Is it? And listen, I'm not just saying, is it scripturally true? But I think that there's just a discernment that God will give a leadership among a congregation and say, is this from the Lord or not? You know, maybe somebody said, well, listen, I'll, I'll tell you something. I, I've experienced in meetings where we're just waiting on the Lord. And expecting, I've experienced where somebody has spoken a word of real condemnation. And the leaders of that meeting judge the prophecy. And you know what they determine? And I've seen it oftentimes happen. Listen, um, that was a true word of the Lord, brother, but God meant it for you. And you were just trying to push it off on everybody else. You see, that's what a mature discerning and testing of the prophets will determine, will understand. And look, I understand when it comes to discernment and testing, nobody's going to get it right 100% of the time. We get that, okay? And that's not even in dispute. Uh, my, My fear is when there's no inkling of testing or judging of prophecies at all. Jeremiah and the Lord that spoke through him would not be happy about that. Look at what they said here in verse 25. I have dreamed, I've dreamed. You see, the corrupt prophets love to speak about their dreams and great swelling things. The problem was that these were lies. Perhaps the lie was that they ever even had the dream, or perhaps the lie was that it was a true message from God. But instead of being from the God, the messages were, look at there in verse 26, the deceit of their own heart. Listen, I'm not even trying to say that this is from the devil. I don't have to get that dramatic. Oh, it's the devil's. Listen, listen. Maybe it's from your well-intentioned heart. But it can be from your own heart and not from the Lord. Well, brother, maybe I'd be very interested in hearing a word from your heart. Maybe I'd be very interested in having an exhortation. Hey, th- this is, I just want to share this with you, brother. That's fine. What, why do you have to couch it in terms of thus saith the Lord? Because when you do that, you're putting it a whole other category, aren't you? If you're speaking from your heart, great. Brother, I might be very interested in what the Lord's put on your heart. But it's on your heart. You're not trying to couch it in terms of thus saith the Lord. And look at the ill effect of this in verse 27. Who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams. These corrupt prophets love their focus on spiritual phenomenon such as dreams. And this was a pretended spiritual focus, but it drew attention away from God himself. Everybody was all interested in the dreams, the dreams. What about his word? Well, you know, that's kind of boring. What's the dream? What's the dream? It's a dangerous thing. That's why verse 28, I love this. If you like to underline things in your Bible, underline verses 28 and 29. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. The prophet who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. 
What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Hey, prophet, you got a dream? Go ahead, tell your dream. Dream on, brother. Go ahead, say it. Tell the dream. Present your best case. But friends, he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. I'll invite the brother to share his dream if he wants to. But the one who has the word of God, bring your word. Because look at there in verse 28. What is the chaff to the wheat? Now, friends, do you know what chaff is? Chaff is that light, airy stuff that surrounds a little husk of grain. Wheat is the grain itself. Do you have something light, airy, insignificant? It's not nothing, but it's almost nothing. And the other one, you have something that feeds and nourishes and can produce more seed. You have the chaff and the wheat. Now, let me ask you a question. Here's a little Bible quiz for you. Is the dream the chaff or the wheat? Chaff. Some of you are a little uncertain there. Let me help you out. It's the chaff. The word of God. Is it the chaff or the wheat? It's the wheat. You see the difference there? Why are you going after the insubstantial things? No, he says, the wheat is like substance and nourishment. It gives life. It has the power of multiplication. And then God says, my word is like fire and it's like a hammer. And I tell you, when the fire and the hammer get together, then things get forged the way God wants it to be. It's like a fire and it's like a hammer. Now friends, none of this should take away from our understanding and our surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. If his word is like a fire, then it's the Holy Spirit striking the match. If his word is like a hammer, then it's the Holy Spirit with his hand on the hammer. We, we understand and we celebrate and we invite and we yield to the operation of the Holy Spirit of God in and through his word. There is a such thing as a, as, if I could say it, a spiritless presentation of God's word where it's all up in the head, where it's all about this, where it's not in the flow and in the anointing of the Spirit at all. We're not talking about that, though. We're talking about where the fire and the hammer work together in beautiful concert, and God's Word is worked. Verse 10. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophet, says the Lord who use their tongues and say, he says, behold, I'm against the prophets who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Friends, that's a heavy thing, isn't it? Verse 30, God says, I'm against those prophets. I'm against them. It may say profit on their business card, but they don't really speak for me. So I am against them. And then he says in verse 20 or 32, I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit. The, get it? Profit? This people? Now, that's just in the English. It's not the Hebrew at all. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all. Because God didn't send them. They're not going to do any real good. Even though they might have good intentions. You know what I love about this? Jeremiah is really not dealing with their intentions at all. They may have the most wonderful of intentions. But if they're not bringing forth God's word, they're not doing much good. Finally, now verse 33 to the end of the chapter. 
So when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say to them, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say, the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man and his house. Thus, every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you've perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus, you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I have sent to you saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and will cast you out of my presence and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten friends if you look at verse 33 he's talking all about the oracle of the lord something you got to understand here there's a word play going on here in the ancient hebrew the word oracle that's translated in the new king james bible the 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 ancient hebrew word is masa and basically what it means is it can mean two things it can mean a burden it's something you lift or put on your back and it can mean an oracle a word from god and he's playing off those two meanings They would say, oh, it's a burden. Oh, Jeremiah, you got a heavy word for us today. What is the burden of the Lord? You got a heavy word for us? Jeremiah says, yeah, you want a heavy word? Basically, and to paraphrase what he says there, he goes, God says to you, you're my burden, you false prophet. You are a burden to me. And then this idea of the burden, something that you carry in the last few verses there, verse 39, he says, I will cast you out of my presence. I'll take you like a burden and throw you out of the land because you didn't obey my word. Friends, it's a heavy thing, isn't it? I just get called back time and time again that we need to be a people of the book, a people of his word, a people of discernment. And if we are that way, it will lead us to, can I just finish with some happier thoughts from the first eight verses of the chapter? It will bring us back to the glorious King, to the Lord our righteousness and make us rest in Him and His kingly rule over us. Father, um, we, we end kind of abruptly here. But Lord, we recognize the supremacy of your word. And Lord, we understand that people may have all kinds of spiritual experiences. And Lord, whatever. But God, we just want to say and proclaim before you that with you helping us, we will never place some experience and give it more authority than your word itself. Either an experience in our life or somebody around us. No, Lord, we love you and how you work in our life and how real you are to us and how personal you are to us. But Lord, we pray that you'd make us faithful unto you and a people, a people of your word. Pour it out upon us, Lord. We love you, we praise you.
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for a last song.